Chapter 20. Meltdown. Is this part supposed to be plastic? Linda held a model airplane, sitting on a sofa in the living room of their house. Annie's eyebrows scrunched. She huffed a frustrated breath and grabbed the model. No. Mr. Leroy said the same thing. I don't know why I keep doing that. I turn the entire thing the shape that I want, but the material isn't so easy to change. Linda smiled. Well, you did that super quick. It sure looks easy. I don't know if I can help you here. I don't completely understand your talent. Not like Jack did. Does. Annie corrected. She made eye contact with Linda, who smiled, shivering her shoulders. Did it get cold in here all of a sudden? I just had a cold chill all the way down my spine. I'm not cold, Annie said, continuing her work on the plane. Touching the wing of the plane, the shape of it melted into a ball like liquid, and solidified into a brown leather ball. Linda got up from the sofa and checked the windows. Rain fell outside of the house, the world around them painted gray by the cloudy afternoon. It's the strangest thing, Anne. Your brother just popped into my head. I've been thinking about him a lot today. The thought of him will just show up. There seems to be no rhyme nor reason for it. I've been praying a lot about him today. She turned around and Annie had finished the model airplane once again, turning the leather plastic all except the cockpit. Annie sat and listened to Linda, looking frustrated. He'd be able to help me figure this out. Linda's shoulders dropped a bit from this comment, and the doorbell rang. Linda opened the door to a bright, smiling blonde girl under an umbrella. Linda shivered again, as thousands of miles away in a cave far beneath the streets of Kabul. A brown-haired man sat with his eyes closed, breathing deeply. As his breath became more forceful, a small tremor began to grow in the ground around him. One deep breath, and the tremor subsided. He shook his head and returned his focus to telepathically search once more for the family he lost. Nearly a mile above, Abrisham stared in the distance, standing in the middle of the roof with a bucket of water in her hand. Princess? Vita said. Abrisham snapped out of it, looking down at her bucket, which was now flooding the pot with water. Some of it spilled over into the ground. She shook her head and placed the pot on the ground. I'm sorry, Vita. My mind is not with me. Vita walked over with a warm smile and began waving her hand first over Abishelm's dress, from which droplets of water flowed out of the fabric and hovered over Vita's hand. She moved onto the ground and the flower pit, where she masterfully removed just enough water from the pot that the watering process wasn't a complete waste. Abishelm looked at her faithful servant's work with pride. The water hovering over Vita's palm was clear as crystal, not containing any dirt or debris. The delicate work of a master. When she was satisfied, Vita gracefully floated the water blot back onto the bucket. You're worth ten of the manservants. Not a single one could ever perform as you can. Vita nodded humbly. Yet Vita's spectacular work wasn't nearly enough to distract Abisham's nagging thoughts for long. She walked down the rows of plants, getting lost in thought once again. Why would he do that? I severely misjudged him. He's not different at all. He's just as cruel as my father. 
Vita stayed silent, continuing to water the plants as Abishan talked. Vita, please say something. Vita floated the blob of water into the bucket again. Do you really want my opinion, princess? You have gone through more loss than anyone here, yet you have not left or even complained once. I don't understand. You must have known people in that crowd, friends or family. I did. Vita smiled weakly, emitting a faint sadness. Slight determination replaced her sadness when she spoke. But this is how my mother taught me and my sister to view our situation. Though gratitude is part of it. Being able to have a roof over our head with the protection of the warlord. The other part, she used to say, is understanding that this place is a cage for animals. Men are pulled from the streets all over and locked up in those caves underground. Any man kept in a cage for dogs will eventually begin to behave like one. He will bark for his food, growl at intruders, and begin to bite his attackers. Abisham sat on the ledge as Vita continued. That last part I now understand, though when I was a child, I always pictured the male servants barking and biting each other when she told me that. Watching the match last night actually made her words fit right into place. That man has been treated like nothing but an animal. It's only a matter of time before he begins barking for his food and scratching at his cage. Abrisham sat for a moment, pondering. Warm wind caught her hair as Vita continued watering the plants. Your mother was very wise. I miss her a lot. So do I. Vita smiled, meeting eyes with Abrisham. Seeing her smile brought some warmth in her cold and confused spirit. Abisham stood, walking toward the doorway inside. I'll return shortly, she said, disappearing into the shaded halls. She took the secret entrance of the caves and headed down to her ledge, where she saw Jackson sitting peacefully by himself. His eyes were closed and there were no surface thoughts coming from his mind. It was just like the first time they met. Down below, Bot James tapped on his shoulder. Jackson? Bot James said. Jack leaned against the cave wall, keeping his eyes shut. Jackson? Are you alright? Your behavior is abnormal. I'm in a dang cave, robot. Jack said with a cold tone of voice. What behavior is normal in a dang cave? Abrisham felt deep rage begin to bubble slowly to the surface. You have remained in that same position for eighteen and a half hours. Your lack of movement is concerning. When all of a sudden did you start talking like an actual robot? My medical analysis protocol was not assigned a personality directive. Personality directives are assigned to mission-specific tasks and training-oriented tasks. So to say, being concerned about your behavior was not part of the plan. The rage reached the surface of his emotions and he snapped his eyes open. They flashed red and he zipped to the robot, grabbing its neck. Jack pinned him against the wall so hard a tremor began and swept through the whole mine. And what exactly is your stupid mission here, robot? 
he asked, still maintaining a calm but intense tone of voice. What you've told me is that your purpose here is to keep me from dying. You can get me out, but you choose not to. You can save me from this crap, but you choose not to. Spit flew from his mouth as his steely glowing red gaze burrowed into the robot. I want to know why. Jack slammed the tiny robot into the wall again, causing a ripple behind him to quickly spread to the ceiling, where a colossal chunk of earth broke off and fell directly above him. Without looking away, without breaking his focus in the slightest, he simply raised his hand and stopped the boulder midair. He swatted his hand away and the boulder went flying down a deeper portion of the cave. The crash sounded like an explosion and sent tremors through the rest of the tunnels. Jack's eyes glowed bright red as his glare darkened. Do you find this outburst of aggression beneficial to your mental well-being? Jack squeezed his neck harder and harder until his hand and arm shook. The robot simply blinked its eyelights. He finally released the bot and it landed on its feet. Jack walked over to the boulder he tossed and punched it, shattering it to pieces. Screaming for a solid four seconds, he stood silently, his shoulders rising and falling as he breathed heavily. He knelt down in the sea of pebbles and rubble he just created. What are you? He said quietly. I am the training bot, assigned to the protection of your physical life. You know I'm not asking a literal question. I've never squeezed something so hard in my life. Never put so much power into anything I've ever done. But you, you're just standing there like I'd never even touched you. I've been tasked with ensuring that you do not die in this self-inflicted prison experience. Self-inflicted prison experience? My data shows that even with partial power capacity, you are more than able to overcome the assassin at the museum. Jack stood to his feet again. Don't bring up the museum, he said, his tone becoming sharper once more. That was a choice to save my friend. Jack's eyes went wide and he looked down. I apologize, Bob James said. That is the data description I have on your situation. Your apology means nothing to me. I want you to give me some actual answers. The robot stood still, looking at Jack silently. Mental health was not an assigned sector of your preservation for this assignment. Would you like to discuss your emotional experience regardless? What do you care about my feelings? Obviously you don't care about how I feel. Jack pointed to the burn portion on my face. You let this happen to me! His rage made the pain easier to ignore. Each of his words made the cave shake slightly. Perhaps due to the sheer power and volume of his voice. But perhaps for another reason. Abishan was unable to determine which. You want to talk about my mental health after you let this happen? I'm a monster now. I killed people. Even if I didn't look like a hideous animal, I could never show my face to anyone back home. The cave shook violently now as he breathed heavily, grabbing his face with both hands. Abrisham sensed surface thoughts and memories now that he was emotionally compromised. Memories of a family, a man with dirty blonde hair laughing, a brown-haired little girl, a blonde girl smiling. Jack dropped to his knees and sat, shaking for a few moments. But James came and sat beside him, grabbing his own knees as he crossed his legs. 
The memories turned sour as each of the individuals in the memories began to cry. The man with dirty blonde hair being shot in the head. The audience members being burnt by the fire from his hands. Jack screamed again, tears welling in his eyes. One large tremor accompanied the scream, then subsided slowly. As he breathed, the shaking of the cave began to calm down steadily. Tears dripped off his chin. A few moments later, the cave was quiet. Who cares about my mental health? His voice was calm, temporarily losing its bitterness. Who cares about my health at all? As he spoke, the cave began to shake again. Months. Years, maybe. I've been in this stupid cave, mining this stupid iron, fighting their stupid battles for how long? I don't even know. I've heard nothing. No one has come for me. No one has been looking for me. No one has even been thinking about me. I'm cut off from my life, and no one cares enough to come get me. Well, forget it. I'm done waiting. He rose to his feet again, the cave now shaking violently. If they're just going to move on with their lives and not even come to get me, then I'll just move on with mine too. Screw them. I was going to die before I saw them again anyway. Jack began walking toward the entrance of the cave. All of this power. Jack shook the cave with each step. His eyes flashed red. In the void, Jack grabbed the doors, swinging them wide open. All this potential. Jack cleared the sludge away from the doors. Wasted in a stupid mine as a stupid gladiator. Jack passed to Paul, who stood in the clearing, where the rest of the men ate their dinner. Every eye now trained on Jack as he walked. If the men of the mines were even slightly in his way, they moved quickly before he even reached them. If fear would have had a scent, this place would have reeked. The men shook as they watched him pass, not from the tremors, but from the sight of him, glowing eyes and all, fighting their idiotic fights so they can have a few laughs. He passed the gates of the entrance of the mines, not even caring enough to note how strange it was that they were wide open in the first place. I'll just spend the rest of my short, stupid life doing the one thing I'm apparently good at. Jack passed three guards that didn't even pay him any attention. Warlord or not, at least he sees potential in me. Jack passed the prince who looked shocked to see him. Jack didn't even stop and acknowledge him. He pushed the doors wide open and stormed into the front room where the warlord resided. So you've made your decision, the warlord said, looking out the large window at the city below. I have. I'll do whatever you want me to. I don't care anymore. I'm gonna die anyway. Just send me in a direction and I'll go. One step at a time. I've made armor for you. In the center of the room, Set a golden box. Jack opened it and found unique leather armor. He held it up to himself and looked at the warlord. Put it on, and we'll talk about your assignment. Jack's eyes brightened when he looked over the armor, tailored and made specifically for him. Jackson Medley, the assassin.